young Christians, little theologians. If you are staying in here, I would love for you to draw me a picture. A picture of what do you do when life goes crazy, when everything around you is hectic and disordered. Church, what do you do when everything is in disarray, when everything seems to be going wrong, when everything seems to be spinning out of control? Yesterday, my mom uh, was playing with Legos with my kids, and she taught them a new word, cattywampus. Don't build that building cattywampus. Don't put those tracks cattywampus. Don't build it so it's going to fall apart. Don't put extra chaos in the system. Don't put it diagonally like that. That's cattywampus. What do you do when life seems to be cattywampus, when nothing is where it should be, when everything is disordered and out of place? What do you do when life is cattywampus? When I was a kid, when I was maybe four or five, I lived in Nepal, and we lived in this house at the bottom of a hill, and there was a wall all around uh, our property, and a, and a big gate right at the front of the property. And I remember there was one day when I had a, a bunch of friends over for a party. I think it was a tea party, if I remember correctly. My parents are here today, so we can ask them the veracity of my memory on this. But the, the tea party had come to a close, and, and my friends were getting picked up. My parent, the, the, parents, uh, the parents of my friends were there to pick up my friends and, and take them home. And as any generous and kind host would do, I pitched a fit. I screamed, I yelled, I ran to my room, I picked up a toy, and I smashed a window with it. Because, you know, that's what good hosts do. Kids always throw fits at the most opportune times, don't they? Well, this particular day also happened to overlap when my cousin was visiting. Um, He was uh, a missionary in Bangladesh at the time and was spending a few weeks with us. And on this particular opportune day, uh, with my histrionics going on in one room, uh, my cousin was experiencing hypoglycemic shock, diabetic shock. And the quick solution, the quick easy answer to that is to get them a soda, get them some easy sugar to get into their system. And my mom, being a wonderful mother and nutritionist, uh, had no soda in the house. (laughs) So the quick and easy solution again was for my dad to run to the corner store um, and pick up a soda. Fanta, as it may be. There was two kinds of sodas, Coke and Fanta. And I was never allowed Coke because of caffeine, so it was always Fanta, you know. Living in Nepal, certain, certain delicacies. So, simple. I'm in one room pitching a fit, my cousin is in another room desperately needing a Fanta, and my friends and their parents are all milling around trying to leave the tea party. Well, it wouldn't be growing up in Nepal if there wasn't a snake in this story. <laughs> so as my friends and, my parents and their parents are trying to get out the gate, and as my dad is rushing to go get a Fanta, a, a, an astute businessman decided to bring his pet cobra and set it right in front of the gate that leaves our house, and sat it right there and set it to a charming dance. And so for the few, you know, for the low price of a few hundred rupees, we could show him our regret at not being able to stick around and enjoy the show. So I'm throwing a toy through my window in my room. I got families trying to leave my, kid, my cousins in diabetic shock, and we now have a snake charmer blocking the front gate. Things were a little bit cattywampus, were they not? What do you do, friends, when life is cattywampus? So returning back to my question, young Christians, little theologians, I want you to draw me a picture of a time when things were crazy and hectic and cattywampus.
And then I want you to ask your parents, what do you do, where or what or to whom do you turn when all of life is disordered? Church, slightly less young theologians, not quite as little theologians, how do you answer that question? Where do you turn? To what do you turn? Or to whom do you turn when life seems in disarray? This is the question before us in this letter that John is writing to this church. This church is thrown into chaos. And this is where we enter the story today. Verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I think there's a few questions that arise as we read this, the first of which is, what does John mean by the last hour? Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul and Peter discuss what is to come in the last days. And as Justin preached on in Matthew 24 a few weeks ago, Jesus discloses a little bit of what is to come in those last days, in the close of the age. And I don't want to spend too much time rehashing those ideas, but John has in mind this time period, this intervening time between when Jesus has ascended to the throne and is sitting at the right hand of the Father and when he will return again in the last days. And these are the last days. These are the last hours. And, and this time is characterized by a quickening of lawlessness, of, of persecution, and the coming of antichrists, as we see. And this all is what characterized this particular time, this last hour, these last days. And it's in this time that John is writing. So too is it that this time is in this time that you and I live. We are in the last days and the last hours. So John is saying, remember how we told you that Jesus said, and in that time, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. See how we remember you, we tell, told you that? Well, look at this. We see all of these false prophets. See how all of these antichrists have left this church. Children, it is the last hour. I think a second question arises, though, out of this apocalyptic language. What is meant by antichrists? Again, I think this is a question that we could spend all, time, all, all day exploring, but I think it's helpful to just quickly examine what John clarifies, how John clarifies what he means by antichrist, how he intends us to understand it. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They, that is the antichrists, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And then jumping down we, uh, to verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So who are these Antichrists, according to John? I think we can say that he has in view one, those who have left his, this particular church to whom he is writing, and two, those who are now denying Christ. That's his particular connotation of antichrist in this particular context. And we'll say more about that in, the moment, in, the, in a minute, about what, what they're specifically teaching doctrinally. 
Um, but I think we can briefly say that at least we see that they're teaching that Jesus was just a man. He was not the Christ, not the Messiah, not God in flesh. So generically, John's understanding of antichrists are those who are just anti-Christ, those in opposition to Christ. But I think that we would be remiss if we believe that that is all that John has in mind. Notice that in verse 18, he says, as you have heard that antichrist singular, is coming, so now many antichrists, plural, have come. Who is that singular antichrist? The uh, English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones helpfully summarizes uh, some of the biblical information about this antichrist. It seems to me that there are things about which we can be certain, though a great deal remains uncertain. The Antichrist was already at work in the days of Paul and of John. Second, it is abundantly clear that although there have been many limitations of him, he will reach his maximum power just before the end of the age. And lastly, this power will ultimately be concentrated in a particular person. John says that there will be many Antichrists, and yet the teaching is clear that there is going to be an ultimate Antichrist. One person, a person having terrible power, able to work miracles and such wonders that he almost deceives the elect themselves. And so I think the image that John is calling to mind is of the Antichrist who will concatenate all of these dreadful images at a time yet to come. But still, this Antichrist kind of reaches back through time, having an effect now upon these secessionists, those who have left the church. And these Antichrists, plural, bear the spirit of that dreadful thing that is to come. That is the singular Antichrist. So consider the context of these words. The the church has seen a number of people leave the church, and these secessionists are now denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the God who put on flesh. Um, And they are actively trying to encourage others to leave the church to join them. But John doesn't treat this as merely an interpersonal disagreement. John frames the schism of the church in terms of a cosmic battle. He reorients our focus from merely a material conception of a disagreement to an understanding of the overarching spiritual realities. And it calls to mind Paul's admonition to the Ephesians to put on the armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, I think we deceive ourselves if we think that all that meets the eye is all that there is to see. Each of the apostles in the New Testament locate our struggle, our daily mundane struggle, in the context of this greater cosmic reality within this larger story. And we would do well to bear that admonition in that context as we seek to understand our struggles with the world as well. So do things feel a little bit cattywampus? Not only is the world spinning out of control, but the world isn't just what you can see, feel, taste, and smell, but there is a spiritual dimension to all of these problems. Not only did a bunch of people leave the church, but they are filled with the spirit of the Antichrist. Children, John writes, it is the last hour. Things don't just feel cattywampus for this church. Things are cattywampus. What can you believe? Who can you believe anymore? 
What we've seen here is John is not making the problem better yet, not giving any answers yet. He is intensifying the problem. There's an existential feel that something is off about the world, and he wants to put words and flesh to that feeling. He wants us to understand that this spiritual reality, this is creeping in, this haunted reality is encroaching in upon us, and this feeling is real because there is a real reality, though we may not feel it and see it. And John wants to put words and flesh to this reality to help us understand the problem so that when he provides the answer, we better understand where he's coming from. So what then is John's response? In verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. So John says, first, you already know the truth. Return to the basics. Remember what you already know. What, I think, what is it that John is getting at in particular? I think we can see his reference to the truth that they already know the, uh, in light of the first three verses of this book in, in chapter one. John has already proclaimed to them the story of Jesus and Jesus's life and that John was an eyewitness to his account. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaimed also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Specifically, I think we can locate the particular meaning for truth for John in this instance in being a rebuttal to the claims of the secessionists, those who have left the church. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Looking ahead to chapter 4, John again clarifies that he's speaking against those who not only would deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the longed one of Israel, but also would deny that Jesus was God who put on flesh. The Antichrist probably taught that Jesus was born and died a man, that the Christ by which they mean a divine emanation was within him only during his public ministry. It descended on him on his baptism, and then it left him at the cross. They made him a mere man for whom a brief period was invested with divine powers. So fundamentally, this is a denial of the doctrine of the incarnation, of our understanding from the letter to the Philippians that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. But if holy, perfect, pure God can take on the life of man, live the life we could not live, then his death can atone for my sins and for your sins. And this is true, friends. Do you know it? I write to you, John says, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. But moreover, continuing in verse 23, John says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. If we forsake our understanding of Jesus as the Son, then we cannot know, Jesus says, God the Father either. As Jesus says in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus is the Son and is the one through whom we can know God the Father. 
And so if we give up our understanding of God, of Jesus as God in flesh, then at best, God is a deistic clockmaker, a wizard of Oz hiding behind the curtains, tinkering with the universe, but utterly and completely unknowable. But John says this agnosticism is unnecessary. You don't need to not know. You already know the truth. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Let what you heard from the beginning This is the gospel. This is the good news that we proclaim to you about Jesus. From the moment that you first believed, this is the gospel truth that you heard and trusted. Allow that truth to abide in you. Allow it to seep deep in you, to saturate your mind and your soul. Live continuously in this truth. John says, abide in it. What does that look like for you, brothers and sisters? When the whole world seems off kilter and there is nothing stable on which to hold, how do you abide in the truth? First thing is to abide in the truth when the world does feel more normal and more straightforward. I think this means establishing a practice of being in the word in our scriptures. If we will take the time to read and to ponder and to meditate upon these life-giving words, then we will find ourselves returning to this truth when all else feels frazzled and disarrayed. Read the scriptures. Love the scriptures. Such that we find ourselves saying, as Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So if abiding in the truth means living in the word, reading the word, studying the word, second, I think we can say that to have the truth abide in us is to remember, to call to mind. So John isn't asking us to remember a complex theological treatise, but simply the good news. We are a forgetful people. It's not that we cannot remember, it's that we will not to remember. John is repeatedly saying, just remember what you already know. It isn't that you don't know. It is that you don't remember. The difficulty is that when we encounter a new situation, that suddenly we, need a, we think that we need a new, deeper spiritual understanding in order to move forward. But I think rarely is that true. The richness, the depth, the subversive subtlety, the simple nuance of God's word is such that more than often, we don't need a new understanding. We only need to remember and to see that the old truths that you already know are applied to these new contexts in breathtakingly wonderful and new ways. Church, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So therefore, the first antidote we have to the catawampusness, if you may permit me such a word, of the world is knowing and remembering the word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The second, I think, the second answer is our anointing. John writes in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And then further in verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So how should we best understand what John is meaning by anointing? What is the purpose of it? What's the benefits of being anointed? 
In the Old Testament, we frequently saw prophets and priests and kings being anointed with oil as a sign of their office, as a commissioning to the purpose and the job before them. Then at the beginning of uh, his ministry, uh, Jesus is uh, baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and the scriptures call this his anointing. And it's, I think, in this sense that John would have us understand our anointing. For Jesus is not only anointed by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come to believers to guide and lead them as well. I think there's a very real sense in which we as believers, as Christians, have been anointed by the Holy Spirit in the same way that Christ was anointed. Lloyd-Jones articulates it like this, because we are incorporated into Christ and into the life of Christ, we partake of what is true of him. Therefore, as he has been anointed and received the Holy Spirit without measure, all of us who are in him receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because we are in him. Because you are in Christ, you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Or as John says, because you have been anointed by the Holy One, you all have knowledge. Now, the question arises, what does it mean to say that we are anointed? What is the purpose of our anointing? What are the benefits of our anointing? In the Bible, we see a multiplicity of the roles of the Holy Spirit that plays in our lives. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Spirit is called a helper, a comforter, a guide. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that causes us to produce the fruits of the Spirit. These are all true. And there's much more that we could add to our understanding of the indwelling of the Spirit. However, I think that John has just one particular function in mind when he reminds the believers of their anointing. Look at verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You, friends, have this anointing, so therefore there is no need for anyone to teach you. How best can we understand what John means by this? Because if he really means that there's no need for teaching, why is he writing this letter? Is he not teaching them? I think there's a couple things that we can say that this anointing is not, to begin. There's a common expression in our day, uh, something that goes to the effect of, you know, be true to yourself, or uh, I think I heard, uh, get out of your mind and into your heart, <laughs> uh, or just trust your feelings. And why, while I think these may seem obviously silly, or maybe not, um, and though they are perhaps well-intentioned, uh, there is a Christianized version of this witticism, which calls for you to trust whatever thoughts and visions uh, that come into your mind. Just trust it. Trust that feeling, because they are from the Holy Spirit. And I think that this, this mystical Christian tradition errs in that it departs from a simultaneous reliance upon the Spirit and the Word. We are to test the Spirit's by the word. We have been given the word in order that we can verify what those feelings are. The spirit guides and leads us, but we do not, are not guided and led only by the spirit. The word uh, also helps to cons uh, cons uh, reconcile what we are believing. So perhaps you can find yourself espousing the view that truth is what I feel, that it appears true and rings true for you or me, that makes it true. But it is clear that John doesn't have in mind any of these subjective views of truth. 
So secondly, I think we can safely say that the anointing of the Holy Spirit does not produce infallibility in us, the uh, inability to be wrong. It might be foreign uh, to you and to me to claim a kind of global objective infallibility as though we were the Pope, um, because I think we can certainly see that the history of Christian disagreement has created a number of disagreements. There is no infallibility of the Christian. But perhaps more alluring is the belief that we can, be inf- that we can infallibly trust whatever it is that pops into our own mind. Again, I think we risk pushing our subjective understanding to correspond to objective reality rather than allowing objective reality to invade our space and provide elucidation. I think that there is a strain of this line of thinking that we might call the infallibility by laziness. There are certainly many tough questions that we can ask in our Christian lives. What is the role of our, uh, what is our role and responsibility toward the environment? How should we be uh, understanding our role in and responsibility in racism in the present time? What is the role of the government? What is the role of the church in addressing and correcting the plethora of injustices in the world? These are good questions. They are hard questions. But how do we come to the answer to these questions? I think there's a proclivity to answer these questions with whatever answer is nearest at hand. Perhaps it is whatever pops into our head, whatever, maybe it's something that our parents taught us or a peer um, told us. Maybe it's something that we saw a witty reel on TikTok or a catchy phrase on Instagram. And suddenly we can end up dogmatically defending a position self-assured that we are right. I think this is what I would like to call the infallibility by laziness. The less time that we have considered the, con- the topic, the more confident we are in our position. And I think this also is not what John has in mind when he advocates for our anointing. Rather, I think we ought to take every opportunity that we have to do as the Bereans in Acts are commended and diligently search our scriptures to see what God has said about each of these difficult questions. So what then does John mean by our anointing? We've said what it's not. How does our anointing teach us all things? I think the first thing that we can say that we see here is that John has in mind Jesus' teaching from the Gospel of John. Jesus says, but when the helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will bear witness about me. Which is to say that our understanding of the truth about Christ is attested and taught to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, now that we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So John is reminding the church that they have understanding, they have knowledge, they are able to understand the scriptures and the truth of Christ precisely because they have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we should not be surprised when those who are not anointed do not understand the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So to summarize then, I think this is John's 
response. When all the world is in disarray, when it seems impossible to grab hold of anything firm and sure, when there is a snake charmer outside your front gate, when the antichrists have left your church, when everything seems cattywampus, what do you do? To whom do you turn? Remember, says John, remember that you are anointed by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that anointed Jesus. Remember, remember, friends, that this anointing gives you understanding, the understanding to know the truth, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that God came down to live among us, that we might know him, that he might pay the penalty for our sins, and that we might be reconciled to him. Remember, church, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. As we close, I want to consider one final thought. In verse 27, John says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And then in verse 24, he wrote, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. There is much to consider with what it means to be abide But fortunately, John's letter is recursive and this theme is strong, so we will definitely come back to consider it again. But John is saying we have an anointing of the Holy Spirit. Allow this anointing to abide in you, to be persistent, to be an ever-present presence. And simultaneously, as this Holy Spirit is abiding in you, You are to abide in the truth, in the scriptures, to be so fully filled with the truth that it is filling you to overflowing. Abide in what you have heard from the beginning. The imagery that John uses in his gospel is of the leaf. We are the leaves of a grapevine, abiding, living, taking all sustenance and goodness from the branch and the roots. We are not the plant. We are not the roots. We are not the source. We are but a leaf on the branch. My friends, this is wonderful news because it relieves all the pressure to do, to be, to feel. We are called to rest and abide in him. Recall then the words of Jesus that we looked at last week. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, when all the world seems cattywampus and askew, rest and abide in Christ. Rest and abide in the truth as the anointing of the Holy Spirit abides in you. Let's pray. God, may it be so. May we abide in the truth, and may your spirit abide in us. Give us a passion, a yearning, a hunger to know your truth, to know your scriptures, to know you, so that when all goes away, disarray, when everything seems to fall apart, God, we know where to turn and to whom to turn. Fill us with your spirit that we might seek after you, to seek your face and to seek you. God, we pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.